Friends, colleagues, and the implicitly biased, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We're your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by Dr. Jordan Axe from McGill University. Jordan, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, Jordan, uh, just give our listeners a quick, uh, quick where are you from? What do you do? Uh, I'm from Denver, Colorado, and then I went to undergraduate at Duke University and then graduate school at the University of Virginia and then back to Duke for a postdoc. So I have strong Duke fandom ties. <laughs> and now I'm a pretty new Canadian. I've been here about seven months starting a lab and a job up at McGill. Well, welcome to the Great White North. What is the name of the uh, lab of yours at McGill? It is the McGill Intergroup Cognition Lab, MICL.ca, if I can put that plug in there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, new website and uh, really just getting started. Perfect. Um, as our listeners of the program will will uh, come to remember, we've got all that information up on brainbowspodcast.com. So once you're done or even as you're listening to the episode, head on over there, scoot on over there. We'll have links to uh, Jordan's uh, website and contact methods and et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So uh, we'll link to that for sure. Anyways, uh, Jordan, Intergroup Cognition Lab. What is Intergroup Cognition and what are we going to be talking about today? So in a big umbrella term, I'd say intergroup cognition is looking at the same social cognitive processes that have been a foundation of psychological research for a long time and applying them to an intergroup context. So I look, I'm particularly interested in how our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are shaped by intergroup, this distinction between us and them. And I look at that work both implicitly, where our attitudes, our, our feelings are less controlled, and explicitly when we feel like we have more conscious control over our thoughts and feelings. Let's talk about a couple of examples of maybe both then, if that works. So sure. what, what's like a, what are common explicit biases? And then, then we can go into implicit biases. So what are common, common explicit biases that we have? So some explicit biases are basically acceptable in society, some of them. Uh, and we don't necessarily really judge people for using them. So as I mentioned previously, I'm a big Duke basketball fan. So I have an explicit bias that only want to watch Duke basketball games with fellow Duke basketball fans. That's a bias I'm aware of. I personally endorse and I'm okay with it guiding my behavior. Uh, and so that's one example of an explicit bias. Now, that's not a very uh, compelling one, for example. But, you know, people to varying levels still feel some comfort reporting some explicit biases. So, for example, biases about weight is something that people, relative to other types of biases, there's a decent amount of people who are willing to say that they have preferences about weight, and that can inform outpacks, uh, impacts like discrimination. Hmm. So a, an example of an explicit bias would be something that people are willing to self-report consciously on like a, a scale, for example. Okay. Okay. So... Um, for example, you said you're a Duke basketball fan. If I was, say, a, a Tar Heels fan, mm -hmm. I could be completely biased towards the Tar Heels then. Exactly. All right. And there's a there's an interesting, I used to talk, I started some talks with this example in the Wall Street Journal that was all about Duke is a very hated school. And it was an article about interviewing some managers up in New York and how they were biased against Duke fans. And they had... <laughs> They were interviewing someone who was pretty high up. I forget what the firm. And he said something along the lines of, you know, we have too many of them up here already. <laughs> now, in one context, it's it's kind of funny. You know, Duke is a you know pretty privileged school and no one feels too bad for Duke basketball fans. But at the same time, this is someone admitting to discrimination in the pages of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> right. And it's an example where 
part of my research program is interested in how people can have these explicit biases, but at the same time, they might also recognize that it's unfair and they shouldn't be acting about on them in their behavior. Right. So people have biases of, you know, regarding physical attractiveness or the people, the kind of people they like to date, but at the same time, they can recognize that they shouldn't be using that to hire people for a job opening. Right. But we yeah, have it, moderate degrees of success in, apply, in taking something, an explicit bias in one domain of our life and keeping it out of other domains of our life. Yeah. So, so it's funny in this sense, because obviously it's Duke and everything that you've just mentioned, but if you were to maybe change that around and say, you know, we've, we've got enough people from North Carolina up here already, suddenly that, suddenly that becomes potentially more problematic. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, so now that we've kind of covered explicit bias and we've kind of got a base coding on that, let's flip our attention over to implicit bias. What is implicit bias? So implicit bias is a big term and it can mean a lot of things. I'll, I'll talk about it the way I view it, but I'll also talk about it in the way that it's portrayed in media, for example. So in one sense, implicit bias is when we have to use measures that go beyond self-report because we still think that there's something existing in people's minds. Maybe it's exposure to a certain cultural stereotype or idea that can still shape the way that they um, automatically evaluate other people. So an implicit bias is picking up on something beyond self-report that's maybe more automatic and less controlled, but still very much exists inside your own mind and your psychology. Hmm. And so we use tools that allow us to infer the strength of an association, for example. A very popular test is the implicit association test. And in an implicit association test, for one about race, which is by far our most popular one, people have to sort black and white faces using two different computer keys, and they have to sort good and bad words using two different computer keys, and then they have to uh, do it combined. So in one block, you have one computer key for any time you see either a black face or a bad negative word. Hmm. And then another block, you have to press, a, sorry, in that same block, you have to press a key for whenever it's a white face or a good word. So white and good share a key and black and bad share a key. Then you switch it. Black hmm. and good share a key and white and bad share a key. And you use the speed at which people move through those blocks to infer the strength of the association. And so typically on average, what happens is that people, it's harder for people to form that association between black and good and white and bad. So they're slower in those blocks or they might be, it's easier for them to form that association. They're sped, they're sped up in those blocks where it's white and good and black and bad. So a lot of people show this on an implicit association test. That's, that's a form of an implicit bias, but that differs from explicit bias because most people, if you ask them, do you consciously prefer white to black people? Most people will say that they have no conscious preference. Yeah. And of course, we can get into whether those people are know that that's just a socially desirable response. Do they, mm -hmm. to, do they really feel that way at the bottom? There's at least a disconnect between the two and the, the strength of bias that we see implicit and explicitly. And obviously, uh, much ink has been spilled over the last 25 to 30 years about what it means for someone to show an implicit bias on one of these tasks. Mm -hmm. But when, when people talk about implicit bias in other domains, it can oftentimes mean unintended discrimination. So when people in more in, aside from just pressing keys on a computer, but when it comes to things like hiring or medical treatment or uh, housing decisions that are more consequential and impactful on, on people's lives, there's still the potential for this social information to, to creep into our evaluation, how much uh, medication to give a black versus a white patient. Doctors or nurses or professionals in other areas might not feel that they're consciously using that information regarding race or gender or another social category, but it can still impact their behavior and, and create, in a legal term, disparate impact, intergroup disparities, even though people aren't consciously intending to do it. 
So that's another form of implicit bias, unintended discrimination. We can see how that can be, I mean, obviously implicit bias is problematic, but I can also appreciate why having these conversations in a scientific manner can be challenging. Um, so how do we get ourselves above the fray so that we can talk about this academically? Hmm, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's important to not read too much into the measures, I think. Um, so for example, a lot of people take, take the implicit association test as some sort of lie detector that we're getting at people's right. you know, true attitudes and all that matters is what's going on implicitly. And I find that to be not only from a scientific perspective wrong, but also unproductive from a larger discussion perspective, right. because it's gonna naturally introduce some reactants and it's gonna, it's gonna motivate people to not take the measure for what it is. And so we kind of, I try and frame it as more of just additional information. It's not the full story, but it's part of the story. And so to not put too much in either direction for whether it's all about implicit bias or explicit bias can help us keep the necessary perspective to tackle these issues scientifically. Yeah, I'm just thinking like uh, from a day-to-day perspective, the impl- these implicit biases, you know, they may be omnipresent, but we're not aware of them. While the explicit biases are things that we're actively thinking in our brain, like do we have these biases and trying to keep ourselves in check? So it's kind of interesting to see like, People have this perspective of, you know, if it's not, if you're not controlling it, it's, it's your inner, like, you know, whatever your directive is or whatever, right? That's how you actually experience and see the world, even though you might explicitly say and be telling the truth and might be quite honest with yourself and be, uh, you know, not experiencing those biases when you're thinking about them. Right. Yeah. So it's not as if your implicit attitudes are, are revealing your, your true self and we can just kind of get, get, get rid of explicit attitudes in general. You know, we have made... I think real growth as a society over the last 60, 70 years, that there are nice studies to show that explicit attitudes really have changed over time. And there's good reason to believe that these explicit attitudes are related to people's behavior in a meaningful way. But at the same amount of time, at the same time, we have to appreciate that it's much harder to keep out the social information from impacting our behavior than just the perception of having doing so or the motivation to do so. You can't feel like, well, I don't feel like I'm being a biased person. I certainly am not intending to show some sort of form of discrimination, that's not enough. We have to be more vigilant about protecting against those types of biases. Mm-hmm. And this, these explicit biases, I'm thinking of like, you know, sh- social shift or cultural shifts across years, right? And what's considered socially acceptable. Uh, I'm sure that has a huge impact on what we're reporting and, and how we ex- are explicit biases. I'm curious as to, you know, what people's perspective on, you know, cultural shifts are on implicit biases. Is the, in- is the implication that, they don't change or they're, they're all like, how do you get implicit, implicit biases that aren't interwoven with your explicit biases? So from a micro level, I think the research has done a nice job over the last 10 or so years of finding that there are many things that you can do in the short term to say, change someone's implicit bias here, meaning implicit bias, for example, on like a IAT. So someone at baseline is showing an implicit bias on the IAT that they're more pro-white than pro-black. And there are a, good, a lot of things that you can do to change that in the moment. And for so my colleague, Calvin Lai, has, has led the head on a bunch of these, this type, these studies. And they all do a fine job. You can give people a really salient uh, example of you being rescued by a black person, for example. Or, you know, you have to imagine working on a team cooperatively with other black people. And then five minutes later, I give you an IT and you're going to be lower on that score. The problem is that if you come back the next day, you're going to be right back to where you started when you were at baseline. And so 
there are plenty of things that you can do to kind of shift around these implicit associations at a momentary level, but there doesn't seem to create a lot of lasting change. I know some people are trying to work on, for example, phone apps that might be able to create more sustained change, but it doesn't seem like you can do a lot. But what that's different from is the conclusion, well, I guess we can't change these things right. because we have been collecting data on, on project implicit quite some time. And we have been able to see over the last 10 or 15 years or so, whether there has been overall change. And it does look like this is painting with a broad brush, but on, but you do see some change. So for example, gay straight attitudes, implicit association tests, seeing how quickly you associate stimuli related to gay versus straight people and good versus bad words 10 or 15 years ago, scores on that were, were higher than they are now. Hmm. So it's, it's a tough thing to actually study scientifically, but I think if I can editorialize here that <laughs> these things are responding to changes in societal level perceptions of, of certain groups and, and legal rights afforded to certain groups, for example. And so short term, these things seem pretty hard to change, but they also do seem to follow changes to people from certain groups becoming more salient in society and legal uh, changes to, for example, gay marriage. Will also maybe change in turn change implicit attitudes. There is some support for that perspective. So very hard to change at an individual short term level, but we are seeing changes over time. So it sounds almost like um, a combination of things is going on. One of them is is sort of repeated exposure to whatever it is, right? That whatever mm -hmm. that bias is, having re repeated exposure and lots of situations where you know you're challenging that bias, um, seemingly is is creating this uh, diminishment of it. It also seems to me, and, and maybe you can speak more to this, um, it almost seems to me like uh, we have to challenge the the explicit bias before we can then get to the implicit bias and start actually making changes at that level. Is that an appropriate way to kind of think about this? I think that's an interesting way to think about it. Uh, well, I think that implicit and explicit attitudes can be changed to very different strategies. And a lot of the times you might be able to produce explicit by a change in explicit attitudes and not necessarily change in implicit attitudes and, and vice versa. And so it's not as if you have to overcome an explicit bias in order for there to be change implicitly. So again, if we think that there's a many lower level events that go into creating an implicit association, cultural exposure to certain ideas or stereotypes over time, if those in turn change very subtly in the environment in ways that don't really engage more rational reasoning that might go into explicit attitudes. I'd say that it's possible to maybe change people's implicit biases without, ex without having to change their explicit biases. But most of the time they go together and most of the time explicit comes first, but it's not a precondition. Yeah, certainly. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I was, I was hoping to clarify for myself and for our audience. Yeah, that makes sense. Great. So uh, why don't we dive a little bit into your work, Jordan? What, what have you been working on? What, and what, what would you like to chat about specifically? Well, so I've been doing a lot of research from the beginning part of my career on these implicit measures, things like the IIT. And it's a thriving area of research. There's many researchers who do it. And I, I, I think there's a lot of research to do in that domain. But eventually one day I said, well, why don't we actually try and look at something that's a little bit more about people's behavior? Now I'm going to describe a task and you're still going to be able to say, well, that's not really behavior, but it's at least more behavior-like than what some of these implicit association tests are doing. And so what we wanted to do is simulate the experience of reviewing a lot of people for some sort of an outcome and seeing how certain social information might be able to leak into your judgment. So we created this task called, not so creatively, the judgment bias task. But, but what happens in it 
is that you as the participant are given some sort of criteria to evaluate people on. It's supposed to be a pretty broad task. And so the way I use it recently is you as the participant have to look over these people for an academic honor society. Some people get in, some people get are, are not don't get in. You have to decide who gets in and who doesn't. You're presented with 64 applications, about half of which you should be let in, you should let in. And these applications are paired with some objective criteria that you should be using to inform your decision. What's their GPA? What's their recommendation letter strength? Uh, what's their interview score? Something numeric and at least more objective that you should use to form an evaluation of this person. Right. But at the same time, we present some social information to you and we see how does that information impact your ability to evaluate these candidates. And so we've tried this across a bunch of different types of biases. And one of them that I'm interested in now, mostly because it's such a reliable effect, is an effect on physical attractiveness. So when we do this task, half of the more qualified applications are paired with more physically attractive people and half are paired with less physically attractive people and same thing with the less qualified applications. So attractiveness and your objective qualifications are orthogonal here. You can't use one to infer anything about the other. But what we find literally every single time I've run a study, over 20 studies at this point, what we find (laughs) is that a control condition, people can't stop themselves from going easier on people who are more physically attractive. Okay, not the most surprising finding in the world. <laughs> but what I like about it is that afterwards, we ask people two questions. We ask them, did you use physical attractiveness to inform your judgments? And 80% of people say, I didn't use physical attractiveness at all. And they're a little bit less biased, sure, but they still show this bias. It's still, you still can see the fact that they're going easier on people who are more physically attractive. Same thing if you ask people, did you want to use physical attractiveness? There, it's even higher. 90% of people say, I didn't want to use physical attractiveness at all. And... There, you also see the same effect. They're going easier on people who are more physically attractive. So it's this case where the desire to be fair and the perception of having been fair, they help a little bit, but they're not enough. They're not enough to overcome the social bias that's seeping into people's evaluation. People can, again, going back to our Duke and North Carolina example, people can recognize this is inappropriate, but there's also this explicit bias. Do you prefer more physically attractive people? People have no problem telling you that that's the case, but they can recognize that they shouldn't be using it in this decision about who to get into, uh, who to let into an academic honor society, but and but they can't stop themselves. Right. And so I'm hopeful for this task. It's still early. I'm hopeful that this is almost like a fruit fly. It's a way of bringing in these same thought processes that we think can contribute to intergroup disparities or discrimination out in the real world and bringing in them into a lab. And so then we can start to make some kind of rapid progress on psychological perspectives on them. What best predicts these types of biases? What kind of interventions best cut down on it? How can we maybe train it away from people? So that's what's real, that's what I'm really excited about in pursuing in my research in the coming years. Absolutely. I love the sound of that task. I I find it amazing for a couple of reasons. And one that you touched on is specifically you talked about you know actually using behavior, and um, it's something that is so prevalent in any cognitive laboratory where they'll talk about oh you know this behavior. And you're like, well, what was the actual behavior? And more often than not, it's the pressing of a button. And you know the implicit association task, same thing hitting a button it doesn't really mimic real world behavior right and so i i really love the fact that your task uh uses some actual behavioral measure um yes you know but you know to argue against myself of course is that uh you know people are still pressing buttons on a computer screen sure yeah Uh, you know they're they know they're in a study but i'm hopeful that we can use this task to test out, for example, interventions. What kind of interventions best reduce this type of behavior? Because if you were to test that on a field study, it would be very um, 
would be a high investment. It's very hard to do that. You know, you'd have to be really, really confident in your one intervention to try and reduce this type of behavior. But if we can bring it into the lab, that means we can test a lot of different interventions at the same time or against each other. We can kind of use it to increase our confidence in what might work. And then I'll have to really, and I'm excited to do so, I'd have to put my money where my mouth is and take these interventions outside of a lab and into a real world context. But right now I'm still in the lab development stage of it. Yeah. I think it's really interesting too, though, because I see this, I mean, obviously this is going to have an impact on everybody's lives, but uh, the, I think the important thing for me is that it's about evaluate evaluation, right? So what, what situation in, in life are you going to be evaluated or evaluating others? And it's hard, I'm, I'm being, it's a little hard pressed to find a, in my head right now, at least to figure out when you're not evaluating some, someone or something yes, uh, or, or, or being evaluated yourself. Right. So, I mean, it doesn't have to be like, uh, to the extreme of like, you know, getting into a club or getting into a job, although that is very common and in, in something that happens every day. Uh, it could be as simple as just the way you behave to a neighbor or to a friend or to an acquaintance. Yes, I, I mean, I, I really agree with that. And, you know, to go back to some of the, the many, many years of research on measures like the implicit association test, so getting into something that's a little less behavior related. The findings nowadays seem to be that I... Other people disagree with me, but the findings seem to be that these are related to behavior um, in a way that's present but small. So maybe 2% of the variance explained. 2% of the variance explained does not seem like a lot. Maybe most people think of milk when they hear the word 2%. Uh, but if, if, as you said, life is a series of evaluations and we think that these things are spread across many people and across many behaviors, then 2% can really aggregate and accumulate over time. Yeah, absolutely. I feel for you in the sense that it's it's very tough within this work to to get at who's telling the truth, like the full truth versus what's socially acceptable, right? Yeah. So how how do you get at, you know, predictors of, you know, someone being more implicitly biased uh than than another? Uh it's hard to say this group of people is more implicitly biased. Um mm. you know, one thing is that there is always at least some correlation between people's implicit biases and their explicit biases. Uh, so that, and that, that varies across things, across topics, but you know, it's still going to be there. So for some things, it's really high, uh, for some things like pro-life versus pro-choice, there's an IT about this. I haven't run a study about it. And then you ask people their pro-life versus pro-choice attitudes, those correlate quite highly, but for other things like race, um, they're still there, but it's, it's a weaker correlation. Mm -hmm. And actually, if I can talk a little bit about my own research, a paper yeah, that, um, that I wrote that I like was looking at this question of well, how is it that we can get people to report their attitudes? Yeah. And this is not, not the first person to, <laughs> to look into this question, but through this website project implicit where we can uh, collect a lot of data, we compared many different types of explicit attitude questions. And there's some criteria that you can use in the measurement literature to see, well, how are these tapping the the construct of people's explicit attitudes. So we were interested, I, we were interested in the context of race. And so we compared all of these questions that have been developed in literatures like psychology and political science. Sometimes people use very direct questions. Do you like black or white people more? How comfortable would you be with having a white versus a black neighbor? Mm -hmm. But sometimes there's a school of thought that, that signals to people what the social desire, desirable answer is. And so you need to ask it a little bit more indirectly. And right. so there's this rise of questions that are race related, but they kind of give people an out to, ex to explain away their opposition. So attitudes towards affirmative action, for example, is a popular one because 
opposition to affirmative action can be driven by a couple of things. And so if someone had opposition to affirmative action that was based on their race-related animus, they could still say that I'm opposed to affirmative action because I don't think any group should be given a leg up. It's nothing about race. It's just about fairness or something like that. Right. And so there's a school of thought that those are the questions that we should be using because people can't really tell what the socially desirable answer is. Right. We compared over 400 items. And what we found is that those more direct items actually did a better job of measuring the explicit attitude construct. And so really the ones that best predicted, you know, things like implicit attitudes were, do you prefer white to black people? Would you be okay dating a black person? Would you be okay having a black neighbor? And right. so it, it kind of pushes against this idea that yes, maybe there's social, some social desirability here, but it's not so bad that it, it occludes or it's worth going away from these items that are very direct and topic relevant. Yeah. Is that just because someone that's willing to explicitly say that they're, you know, they've got this bias, that their scores are just map obviously they're if they say that they have a, a bias towards one group their implicit bias is going to mirror that whereas the others that don't say it are kind of just like could be either or you know they could be saying it because it's socially desirable or uh do you know what i mean like is it just yeah, because they're, they're pulling in that? um yeah well we used a couple of different outcomes on that so also maximum cool. for example maximizing differences between white and black participants is another outcome used to kind of validate which measures tapping into explicit attitudes the best right but and so there we also saw that there was that those more direct items were were doing a better job of, ex, of assessing explicit attitudes. Uh, but you know it, it's it is a limitation of the work for sure. To the extent that you think that there's kind of um, what they call shared method variance here, and yeah. that really explains the entire association that we're seeing. But uh, yeah. you know, I, I would say that a lot of a lot of researchers, I hope some researchers take away from this that if you just need to Im include a question in your scale or in your study. I would err on the side of more direct than I would these more subtle indirect items to, yeah. to measure explicit attitudes. Yeah. Uh, really interesting. Uh, Jordan, doubling back to the uh, judgment bias task, do you see predictors uh, there that, that sort of indicate or, or might indicate why somebody would be more pref uh, prefer uh, better looking individuals? That was really poorly worded. I no, no, I, I think that that's a good question. And I have, an unsatisfying answer for it. So, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, I've run a lot of studies on it and I've included predictors that are what you would normally throw into social psychology studies. You know, so, for example, people's implicit and their explicit attitudes. And there's a correlation there, but it's not that strong. It's pretty weak. Same thing with their motivation to, to not show bias on the task. It's, it's there, but it's, it's not too strong. And so I'm really motivated right now. My lab just started collecting data this week looking at, well, can we find anything that predicts these biases better? So we're running one study right now where a common question I get is, well, do people's own levels of physical attractiveness predict bias on the task? Mm -hmm. uh, we'll have to see, but we're running that study right now where people both complete the task and they have their photo taken and that'll be rated by other people uh, for, the, for that level of physical attractiveness. But that's also objective physical attractiveness. Do people's subjective levels of physical attractiveness, how physically attractive do you think you are? Does that predict bias on the task? Mm -hmm. And we're also going to try and look at more cognitive measures. Maybe it's something related to working memory. People who have are just worse at baseline for something like working memory, they're less interested or less able to process what it takes to parse one of these objective qualifications. And so they're going to use the, the social cue more. So I, I, what now, right now what I found is very weak. And so I'm very, very interested in finding what are real predictors here, mm -hmm. even down the road. I'd really love to do something with eye tracking. I don't know anything about eye tracking, but fortunately <laughs> people here at McGill do. And eye tracking could be a really nice way to, to 
make progress on this issue? What What is it that people are looking at that <laughs> drives the amount of bias they show in their behavior? And what are the things that we can do to disrupt that association, perhaps, between gaze behavior and, and actual bias in your judgment? I would be really interested in that in the sense that yeah. looking at an application, for example, like you said, you know, looking at their application, how often are they gazing at the picture? Uh, mm-hmm. And what's that rating? What's the rating based on the physical attractiveness? That could be really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be a very exploratory study that we'd want to replicate. But is it is it about how long you look at a more versus less physically attractive face initially? Is it about mm. when you return to it? Is it about, is the last thing you're looking at when you make your decision? Is it about a face or is it about the criteria? Yeah. I think there are a lot of really plausible predictors. And so I'm excited to work on that. No kidding. Now, Jordan, I think you probably just teased this question's answer. However, I will ask it nonetheless. If you were a betting man, where would your money be on in terms of predictors for this effect? That's a great question. And, you know, part of me is going to go with a cop out of the scientist of saying, you know, I really don't know. That's why I'm running the study. Uh, (laughs) But I think that we're going to find something with eye tracking more so that we're going to find something with people's own levels of physical attractiveness versus uh, and these more distantly related cognitive tasks. I think for something like physical attractiveness, it's just so salient. Uh, it's, It's so salient and it's so attention grabbing that I think people have a hard time really reflecting on what might actually go into their biases related to physical attractiveness. It just seems like this thing that come that we never really notice its influence on us. Um, and so I think that we're going to get something with eye tracking, less so from the, to these other measures. Yeah, but- I'm, I'm, and I'm really curious too, Jordan, you mentioned the, the actual uh, you know methodology, the way that you uh, define attractiveness in your studies that you have, a, you know, a panel of people that just objectively rate how attractive an individual is based on their picture. But I'm curious as to, you know, the more subjective, uh, you know, people's more subjective views of attraction, because I know that there's a lot of people, I mean, everybody has a sentiment that everybody has different uh, preferences when it comes to attractiveness, right? So some people prefer, you know, redheads versus, you know, brunettes, whatever, whatever it is, blue eyes versus brown eyes. Uh, And so I'm curious if, you know, that might be playing a part as well as, you know, someone has a particular type that they like, and that's the picture that it is. It might not be objectively attractive for the, you know, the whole world or whatever, whatever you're using, you know, not everybody seems that person attractive, but you might. Uh, I wonder if that might be playing a huge part in that as well. Right. Cause I know, you know, to to me, that would make sense that it was, if, if you personally find this person attractive. Right. So that might play too. we all know phrases like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And it's fair <laughs> that you know there, are, there is some variability there. But I think I also think there's a ton uh, that goes into shared, <laughs> shared standards for physical attractiveness. You can look yeah. no further than the fact that famous people are physically attractive. They're getting by a, on some sort of shared understanding that we, a large majority of people agree that this person is attractive. Yeah. Um, but, and, but I can't really account for those in my studies. It'd be, it'd be interesting to kind of tease, to get it at a more micro level about what specific faces um, might lead to more versus less consensus in terms of physical attractiveness. I, I don't really even consider myself a physical attractiveness researcher. It's just yeah. something that really keep, kept, kept on popping up in the data that I've decided to, to pursue a little bit more. Absolutely. But so there is there are some individual differences, I'm sure, but I, right now, up until now, I've been able to coast on the fact that uh, <laughs> a lot, there's still a lot of uh, shared knowledge. Yeah, and I and I had a feeling you'd say that as well. And I think that's most researchers that do physical attraction ratings are, are very well aware of how reliable you know the, the hive mind is when it comes to attractiveness. <laughs> a lot of inter uh, interrater reliability on those on those items. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Cool. Well, uh, Jordan, I, it's been great to learn about your work. I, I wanted to ask you, though, because uh, I think your particular area of research is ripe for this. What kinds of myths or misconceptions do do individuals have about that kind of work? Well, okay. Yeah, this is a good, another great question. So, <laughs> you know, implicit bias is a controversial topic. Um, mm-hmm. Seen no more than when it was in the 2016 presidential debates. It's become yeah. very divisive and I think pretty um, polarized over time and politicized. It hasn't been this way for the last 10 or so years that I've been in the field. It's been a more recent development. And so to go back to a myth, uh, the myth is not, the myth is that these researchers designed these tests to find out who the racists are. Um, that's not really why we do this. Uh, we think based on other researcher, other even asocial research, research in cognitive psychology, that there's this whole attention system or processing that people have that's not relying on conscious processing. And it's short-sighted to think that that can't also be at play in the social world and impact the way that we interact with and evaluate other people. And so we're not using these, again, as lie detectors to find out who the racists are. We're interested in how these associations that we're less cognitively aware of or consciously aware of in the moment are still important for understanding how your mind works. And in terms of discrimination research, you know, it's not as if, again, it's, it's just because we can find some instances of the fact that people who have been able to persevere in spite of maybe some social disparities doesn't obviate the need for still studying how these go on in individual behavior, how these are perpetuated by individual psychology. So I think that those are some of the big um, misconceptions that the existence proof that sure, some people can overcome these things means that we don't have to take discrimination seriously as a topic we need to get past that yeah i think i think that those are a few phenomenal points i i especially as a cognitive psychologist um, and not to discount the other points that you've made i really like that kind of relationship that you pointed out between there being the sort of unconscious cognitive domain that's occurring all the time and we want to understand or you not we you want to understand how it's applied um you know, in social settings, I think, you know, in the social world, I think that's, that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And just to follow up on this, because I mean, this has been a great conversation, and really enlightening for me on what biases are and and how they impact our lives. What should someone that's listening to this take and do with all this information that you've just you've just given us? How can this impact? (laughs) How can this impact someone on a day to day basis? You know, that's, um, so one thing I would say, Maybe if someone did a real big deep dive on implicit attitudes or implicit bias research, they might be able to come across some advice from 10 or 15 years ago where it would say something along the lines of, I was so distraught by my implicit attitude score that I changed the background of my computer screen. And now I have a well-liked black person, for example, and I am using that as a way to cut down on my implicit attitudes. And I'm, I think that that'll be good for me in the long run. That's a, at the state of the time of the field, that's a very noble and reasonable thought. But we've come a ways since then. And it's a tricky question because, you know, another part of I was fortunate enough to be a part of a meta-analysis that came out last year that found that, again, was looking at all the things that we can do to change people's implicit attitudes in the short term and to see, well, when we change people's implicit attitudes, is there a way that does that carry over into another behavioral measure in, included in the same study? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, Based on the current literature, no, and there's going to be good follow-up research on that, but it doesn't seem to be the case based on what we have currently. That changes in implicit attitudes mediate changes in some sort of behavior. So if your goal here is to change your implicit attitude, thinking that it'll change aspects of your behavior, I don't think I can recommend that. 
So instead, I think we're moving more towards a perspective of let's make sure that these implicit biases are least likely to operate. So don't give them the chance at all. Famous example is blinding resumes, uh, you know, where there's no need for someone to have their face on their LinkedIn profile, for example. And there's actually a Google Chrome extension that I have no affiliation with that automatically removes that information. And that's, I think, is being more thoughtful. You're taking seriously this idea of once that social information is out there, it's like toothpaste. It's not going back in the tube, right? Like you can't stop your mind from using it. And so what is the work I can do ahead of time to make sure that if I'm convinced that this is not diagnostic, I don't need to see this, then don't let myself see it at all. So put the systems in ahead of time. Yeah. I like that. So if you don't want to be biased in in certain (laughs) decision-making, try and eliminate any chances of possibly looking at anything that might bias you. (laughs) Yes. Now I have to be the academic here and say that depends, you know, Blinding is a great strategy when, when we people can really identify situations where you don't need to see that information. But sometimes what we might be blinding ourself, ourselves to is information we want to see to understand the person's rest of the application, for example. So we know that there are you know, structural barriers that might make it so that certain groups of people have less opportunities or are exposed to a lower quality education. And that might correlate with some of these uh, demographic factors. And so to just thoughtlessly remove that might not actually be all that helpful. So this happened in um, banning the box for in the United States. There's a study about getting rid of the box that that where you indicate that you're a felon. And so this might be an ex- a really nice situation where people are seeing that the, someone is a felon and that's leading to all these biases that they're not necessarily noticing in the moment in the rest of the application. Right. What happened is, is when they got rid of the box, biases actually went up. Again, discrimination increased. Because now it looks like this person has this huge gap in their employment history and they can't really properly account for that. And so I would love to be able to sit here and say, yeah, blind everything, you know, that's a solution. But you actually really have to be thoughtful and and think about, is this just, do I actually really need this information to account for other disparities? Yeah, sort of of intentional aspect to it. So if I could return to what, what can people do right now, they can... Think about ways to only expose themselves to that information that they need. They can also, in their jobs, surely, and in their lives, hopefully, you know, be, be empirical about it. Maybe see if you can introduce something in your life that makes you have to be accountable for how these biases might kind of leak out. So sometimes I talk about this to um, law firms and they have a big lunch culture there. Each individual lunch decision about who you go to lunch with doesn't seem all that important. But if you ask them over time keep track of the type of people you ask to lunch or you spend your lunch hour with track that for six months and look at the end of it and see how, well, I haven't been, I haven't really been paying that much attention to this because each individual decision doesn't seem all that important. But when I I see it after six months and all the data are there, I can see that there's some interesting differences going on. So now I'm going to work harder to counteract that. Interesting. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. Jordan, thanks for, so much for uh, joining us today. Uh, I've learned an absolute ton. I'm sure Drake feels the same way. Uh, I'm sure our audience has learned a lot. Uh, we've covered so much ground, and I'm I'm I feel enlightened, if that makes sense. So <laughs> I, I, I'm really appreciative. Um, well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, can you let us know and our audience know if they have follow up questions that they'd like to specifically ask you? How about or how might they go about doing so? Well. You can email me, jordan.axt at mcgill.ca. Um, you can also visit my lab website, micl.ca. And on there, I have copies of all my papers and 
all the data and materials as well. So if you wanted to download a version of the JBT, for example, judgment bias task, you could download that and run it on your computer, something like that. So those are the resources for contacting me. Fantastic. And uh, as I mentioned off the top of the episode, we'll have all that information available uh, for our listeners on brainbuzzpodcast.com where not only can they find that, uh, they can find a photo of you, they can find a photo of Drake and I, uh, they can make some uh, implicit judgments about us. <laughs> we can block that out if they don't want to. Yeah, we'll block that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, there's a reason I use a photo from a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm guilty of that as well. Uh, so uh, yeah. gained a little weight since then, but whatever. Uh, anyways, <laughs> it's an inside scoop. Um, yeah, you're welcome to uh, leave us a leave us a message at brainbuzzpodcast.com. You can contact us there directly. You'll also find links to all of our social media channels, including Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, and the one that I have mentioned that I don't remember at this particular moment. But c'est la vie. Um, all right, Drake. Anything else? That's it. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.